This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy. Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to our IIEA webinar on understanding artificial intelligence, what it is and what we're going to do. My name is Joyce O'Connor and I chair the digital group here at the IIEA. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Michael Rudridge today. Michael, you're very welcome, a very warm welcome to you. And thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. I can see what you're doing. So we're, we're really pleased to have you with us. Uh, Professor Rudridge will speak for 25 to 30 minutes, and then I will go to your audience for the Q&A. You can join our discussion using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And please feel free to send in your comments or questions or observation during Michael's presentation. And I'll come to your questions after Michael has finished his presentation. And please feel free also to join X or Twitter using the handle at IIEA. A reminder that today's presentation and Q&A is on the record. Professor Rutledge's presentation today is very timely. As you will know and hear, AI has been and is on the headlines across all media on a daily basis, if not every couple of hours. You could say that AI is the most hyped and some would say the most important technology of the century. Yet, as Professor Woodridge will outline, the idea of AI has been around for centuries. And amid all the excitement over the last number of months, it's easy to forget that AI is not a new field of learning and research. Professor Rodrich will assess the nature of this technology, distinguish between the hype and reality, and explore the implications for society. Michael Rodrich is the Professor of Computer Science at the University of Oxford and a Programme Director at, at the Allen Turing Institute. He's been a researcher in AI for over 35 years and published widely with over 400 scientific articles, including nine books. I think it's really interesting that, Michael, you've published books for the general public, which I think is really important, including AI, uh, including AI, the Ladybird Expert Guide to Artificial Intelligence, a short overview of the area, and the Road to Conscious Machines, a longer introduction to AI. Put that up again, Michael. That's good. <laughs> good to see that. That's the Ladybird book. That's the Ladybird book. Well worth getting, I can tell you. And he's received numerous national and international awards, including Outstanding Education Award and in 2021, the Turing AI World Leading Researcher Fellowship from the Royal Institution in the UK. He's been recognised by his peers and served as President of the European Association of AI and President of the International Joint Conference on AI. And a special thing for Christmas, which I think I'm going to let them all know about, Michael, because I think it's very interesting. He's delivering the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, one of Britain's most prestigious public science lectures. And the aim of these lectures is to demystify AI. These lectures will be broadcast on BBC Four in late December, so we'll be well able to see them. Michael, we really look forward to your presentation today and thank you very much again for being with us. 
Well, thank you for that uh, for that lovely introduction. The problem with an introduction like that is living up to it. Um, You'll have I'll, no trouble, I'll, Michael. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do my very best. Okay, so oh dear, uh, let me try screen sharing. Okay, okay. Do we see my screen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So. Um, Thank you again for the invitation. And uh, I, I was invited to do this, I think, at the beginning of the summer. And that was a very good idea to invite me all that time ago, because um, uh, because at, at that point, I still had space in my diary. At the moment, I really don't have space in my diary because of the craziness of AI mm -hmm. over the last uh, over the last six months or so. But actually, I have to say, even from what we originally talked about me uh, me presenting, uh, the scene has changed so much. I mean, uh, I've, I've literally had to redo my standard slide deck. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what I'm going to try and do is in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to give you a feel for in particular, the recent advances in AI, the, the reason why AI has made the headlines over the last uh, over the last 10 months uh, for how it works. And this is not a technical presentation, but we'll talk a little bit about how it works. And if I get that right, then that will demystify the technology for you a little bit, that when you use chat GPT or your, your favorite large language model, that you'll understand much better what's going on behind the scenes. And then, as Joyce said, we'll talk about some of the issues. If we have the opportunity, we'll talk about some of the opportunities that arises, but we should certainly talk about the issues. So let's begin. So artificial intelligence, again, as Joyce said, it's not a new field. It's actually been around since the mid 1950s. Uh, the phrase was coined in around about 1955 by an American researcher, um, artificial intelligence. And since then, a range of different AI technologies have been tried. AI is a very broad church and it includes a huge range of technologies. But the reason that we're having this conversation today is because one core technology started to work this century, and that technology was machine learning. Now, the name machine learning is hopelessly misleading. It sort of implies that you've got a robot that goes away in a room and opens a textbook and teaches itself you know, how to speak French or something like that. That's really not the way that machine learning works. Um, so what I'm going to do is what machine is show you firstly what machine learning is, and then we will see about how machine learning actually works. And maybe the best way to explain what machine learning is, is to think about a classic example of a machine learning task, something that we would want to teach a machine to do. And this is absolutely classic AI, and that's recognizing faces. So what we're going to be interested in doing, the idea is what we want to be able to do is show a computer a picture of a human being, a picture of me or a picture of Joyce, uh, and for the machine to be able to recognize the human being when it, in that picture. And all we want it to do is just print out the name of that person, just type out the name of that person. So how do we do that? Well, the idea, the core idea in machine learning is that we do that, we get the machine to do that by providing training data. And on the right hand side of the screen, I'm showing you some training data that we might use for that particular task. 
So the training data comes in, each bit of training data comes in a pair, and the pair consists of the input. This is the picture that we would give to the machine. And then what we do is we show the machine what we would want it to type out if it saw that picture. So this first bit of training data, this picture of this person, it's actually Alan Turing, one of the inventors of artificial intelligence, the great Alan Turing, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. We show it this picture of this person. And the idea is if you saw that picture, then we would want you to produce the text on the right hand side just to type out the name Alan Turing. So that bit at the top, the picture of Turing and the text Alan Turing, Turing's name, that's a bit of training data. So we give it that training data and then we give it more training data. So underneath that picture, there's another picture of a younger Turing. Uh, and it, the idea again, if you saw this picture, I would want you to type out the text Alan Turing. And then again, more training data. If I showed you this picture, I would want you to type out the text Alan Turing. And we provide uh, training data in that form, input and output, what we call input-output pairs. If I showed you this input, this is what I would want you to produce as output. And that eventually the idea is in machine learning that if we show the machine a picture, and again, we've got a picture of a very relaxed looking Alan Turing at the bottom there, that it would produce the right name. It would simply type out the name of Alan Turing. So you've already learned an important lesson about artificial intelligence, and the lesson is it needs training data. No data, no artificial intelligence. All contemporary AI techniques require training data. And training data of this form is the simplest kind of machine learning. And the tasks that we've just described, recognizing faces in a picture, we call that a classification task. Because what the machine is doing is looking at these pictures and then classifying them. This is a picture of Alan Turing. This is a picture of Joyce. This is a picture of Mike Waldridge and so on. So that's a classification text. And that kind, that's an absolutely classic artificial intelligence. And around about 15 years ago, that kind of task is what started to take off in AI. AI started to get good at doing tasks like that. Uh, and we'll talk about why it started to get good a little bit later on, but the point is it started to get good. So what use is this? Well, facial recognition is important, although occasionally sometimes a little bit scary application of AI, but exactly the same techniques can be used, for example, in recognizing tumors, cancerous tumors on X-ray scans. Exactly the same thing. You provide the training data in the form of, this is a healthy person X-ray, this is uh, a cancerous uh, X-ray. Uh, and the machine learns to be able to classify X-ray scans into either healthy or cancerous. Uh, in the same way, I have colleagues here at Oxford who work on um, doing fetal ultrasound scans and recognizing abnormalities in, in, the, in the brains of babies uh, in, in pregnant women. Um, classic classification. The same technology is used to make driverless cars. If you have a Tesla uh, and you use the self-driving mode, the full self-driving mode, what your Tesla has to do is recognize all the things that are around it. And the, re the way that it does that is through, it's been taught through machine learning to learn that that is a stop sign. When you see that, that's a stop sign, that's a pedestrian and so on. So this is a, a classification task. So that's what machine learning is. How does it do it? Now, I'm going to show you a scary picture in the next couple of slides, but just don't switch off. OK, I'll explain. Honestly, it will be it will be clear uh, what's going on. So if we look at a brain, an animal brain or a human brain under a microscope, we'll see enormous numbers of neurons. And these are nerve cells uh, in the brain and the nervous system, uh, special kinds of cells. 
uh, which are arranged in the human brain into enormous networks. And there's something like, we don't have precise figures, but something like 90 to 100 billion of these nerve cells, these neurons in the human brain. And these nerve cells are massively connected. Um, each, each neuron can have up to 8,000 connections. So it's, it's the, arranged in enormous networks. And each nerve cell, each neuron is a tiny, simple computational device. It's doing something. It's simply looking for a pattern, a very simple type of pattern on its on its connections. And when it sees that pattern, it becomes excited and it sends a signal out to its neighbors. So let me make that concrete here. We've got another picture of Turing and we've got uh, a highly stylized artificial neural network to be able to recognize the picture of Turing. So we don't try and build brains in artificial intelligence. What we do is we use ideas from uh, uh, from the, the natural neural networks that we see in nature, and we use those to inform the designs of software. So now what we're looking at is a software neural network. So how is it working? So here is our picture of Alan Turing on the left-hand side. Now you'll know that that picture, uh, if you take a picture of somebody on your phone, it's actually made up of millions of colored dots. Each dot is a, is a very specific color. Those are the pixels, the megapixels in your, in your picture. So in the top left-hand side of the screen, of the picture, that's a sort of uh, gray brownie colored dot. So that particular pixel is a gray brownie colored dot. So imagine that each of the neurons on this, what's called the input layer, each of them is just looking, imagine each of them is just looking for a very specific color. So for example, this neuron on the top left might just be looking for the color red. And when it sees that the pixel on the top left is the color red, that neuron becomes excited and sends a signal. It spikes and sends a signal. It sends a signal to its neighbors. Now, move to the next neuron along on the top layer. Maybe what that neuron is doing is that that neuron is just looking to see whether a majority of its connections see the color red. So it's, it's connected to neurons that are looking for the color red. And when it sees a majority of those see the color red, then it becomes excited and sends a signal. So what that neuron is doing is recognizing that a majority of the pixels are red. Now, the point is that a task like recognizing a face in a picture can be reduced down to tiny little decisions like that. And that's actually what's going on in your brain. All of human intelligence reduces down to tiny little decisions like that that are being made continually in parallel in huge numbers in your brain every moment of your life. And what we do in artificial neural networks is we use the same idea. We reduce a big computational problem down into huge numbers of tiny little individual decisions. And the way that we use that data is when we show a neural network, a picture of here of Alan Turing and the text Alan Turing, what we do is we train the neural network. We use some mathematics to adjust the neural network so that when it sees that picture, it produces the text Alan Turing. Now, the details of that are a little bit technical and they're absolutely not worth us going into. The mathematics isn't hard, but there's an awful lot of it. And that's why we need uh, powerful computers in order to be able to train neural networks like this. So we've now seen the ingredients that we need to make machine learning happen. We need data. We need the training data. Uh, we implement in software these versions of neural networks. And I say we're not trying to literally model the brain, but we're using the same idea, reducing a big problem down into tiny, individual, very, very simple decisions. 
And we train this neural network with the training data by continually adjusting the network using some mathematics so that it given a, pick the, the right, the, a particular input, it produces the right output according to the training data. And to do that, we need lots of computer power. So AI started to work on problems like this this century because we are in the age of big data. We've got lots of data to do the training. And every time you upload a picture of yourself onto social media, by the way, you are providing training data for the social media's AI companies so that they can recognize you. If you upload a picture of your friends or your relatives and you tag their names on that picture, you're helping those machine learning algorithms to recognize them. Uh, which they may not necessarily be terribly happy about. So data was important and uh, uh, computer power in order to train these neural networks, in order to configure them so that they can make the right decisions. We need lots and lots of computer power and that becomes cheap this century. So this all starts to work. It starts to come together around about 12 or 15 years ago for classification tasks like recognizing faces, for recognizing abnormalities on X-ray scans, recognizing tumors on X-ray scans, and so on. And uh, Silicon Valley gets very excited by this. They can see that this is a promising new technology and huge speculative investments uh, start around AI. And I start to become familiar with this. I start to become aware of this. I'm head of department here in Oxford. And all of a sudden, colleagues in down the corridor from me who 10 years before would have struggled to get research funds suddenly have the richest companies in the world knocking on their door saying, come and work for us and you can name the price. So something starts to really take off. And we see this flurry of activity, uh, which has led to an enormous number of applications of AI over the last few years. Um, so um, that takes us up until around about four years ago, everything. And I think things, there's so much investment, uh, so much press around AI. I really thought there can't, we, this must be peak AI. We can't, you know, see more craziness. But then just as the pandemic began to encroach on us, uh, a new AI technology, which emerges out of that, starts to make its presence felt. And that technology is large language models. And ChatGPT and Bard and the like, if you played with them, these are large language models. So um, where does this idea come from? The idea uh, is uh, it comes from the following. Um, basically, there are uh, some mathematical laws which say all other things being equal in AI with neural networks, bigger is better. The more data you can throw at them and the more computer power that you can throw at them to train them, and the bigger that you can make the networks, the neural networks themselves, then the better the system is going to be, the more competent it's going to be. And these are called scaling laws, and they're pretty well understood. Basically, they amount to saying with neural networks, all other things being equal, bigger is better. So what some Silicon Valley companies decide to do is just turn up the dial. Let's throw 10 times more data and 10 times more computer power and build neural networks that are 10 times bigger than the ones that we've seen previously. Now, I have to tell you, as a scientist, I find that idea that what we're going to do is we're going to get an advantage on our competitors by just throwing more money at it, brute force, is kind of scientifically deeply uh, unsatisfying. Uh, I would much rather the advances came around through deep scientific 
progress rather than just sort of turning up the dial on data. But this is Silicon Valley. They have the money. Uh, they have the resources to do this. So off they go. They start to throw resources at it. And the resources that they throw at are large language models. So what is a large language model? So another big important lesson for today, what large language models like um, what ChatGPT do is something which is ridiculously simple and something which you probably use every day and you have done for years. And what they're doing is completion of, of messages, of completion of text. So the best way to illustrate that is suppose that I'm typing a text message to my wife and I type, I'm going to be, my phone will suggest completions for me. And what completions might it suggest? It might suggest the completion late, that is, I'm going to be late, or in the pub, I'm going to be in the pub, or late and in the pub, I'm going to be late and in the pub. So how is it doing that? Because your phone has built a model of your language, the language that you use when you send text messages. It uses machine learning, very simple machine learning, very simple and naive machine learning to build a model of the text messages that you sent. And it learns that when you type, I'm going to be, the likeliest next thing is either going to be late or in the pub. And it uses that to suggest those as completions for you. So your smartphone is just trained on the text messages that, you know, my smartphone is trained on the text messages that I send um, and probably some generic pre-training. So on the right-hand side, this is me typing a message to my friend near and I type where are, and you can see my, my iPhone suggests the completions you or the, or we, okay? Now, all chat GPT does is exactly the same thing. That's it. You give it a piece of text, and it tries to predict what the likeliest next bit of text will be. That is absolutely all it is doing. Given this bit of text, what should come next? It's doing exactly the same as your smartphone. Uh, the difference is the scale uh, of what it's doing. And you'll notice that here, what it's doing is generating text. Hmm. It's actually making suggestions about what the text would be. So this is generative AI. OK, that's where the phrase generative AI comes from. But it's doing exactly what your phone does. The difference is the scale. The neural networks in GPT-3, which are the first large language model that got the attention of the AI community in June 2020, are enormous. They have 175 billion parameters. Each parameter is either a, a neuron or a connection between the neurons. So they're enormous. And that slide that I showed you previously, there were a couple of hundred. And with a thousand neurons, you can start to do some quite interesting things. GPT-3, the predecessor of chat GPT, had 175 billion. And the training data is 500 billion words, not just the text messages that I sent to my wife, but 500 billion words. That's 45 terabytes. Now, that's so much of ordinary English text. That's a ridiculous amount of text. And where do they get it from? They start by downloading the whole of the World Wide Web, everything, a whole of it. Every web page, you scrape all the English text or, or French or Spanish text. You just you need all of that text. You scrape that and then you follow the links to every other web page. And you repeatedly do that until you've downloaded everything. And all of that text goes into training those neural networks so that they can do this completion task. Given this text, 
what should come next. Now, I emphasize this is unimaginably large amounts of training data. And to process it, to train the neural networks, they needed supercomputers that ran for months. So just training a model like ChatGPT is extraordinarily expensive. It's certainly it's millions and millions of dollars. No, certainly no UK university and I suspect no US university could build its own ChatGPT from scratch for that reason. So this is the timeline. This is how we got here. So the idea of neural networks was originally proposed in the 1940s, but nobody had any idea how to build them. There were splutters of activity in the 1960s and 1980s, but they, they quickly sank basically because computers weren't powerful enough to build big neural networks. Then around about 2005, the area starts to warm up really takes off in 2012. And if you want to Google the history of this, the, the, the thing to search for is AlexNet. AlexNet uh, prompted the frenzy that we're now seeing in AI. OpenAI was founded in 2015, originally as a virtuous open source project. And 2017, the core technology for these large language models, which are particular neural network architectures, was announced by Google. Google spectacularly failed to spot the potential of this technology, or they surely wouldn't have made it publicly available. But they make this technology publicly available. OpenAI uses this with a billion dollar investment from Microsoft. And then in 2020, in the middle of the lockdowns, the AI community begins to realize that something very different is happening. And in that one generation between GPT-2, which was released about 18 months before, and GPT-3, the predecessor to chat GPT, there was a huge step change in capability. The technology got much, much better in a single iteration. And it's very rare to see that. And then of course, the rest is history. November 2022, ChatGPT is released and it goes viral. And to put this into context, I can remember the World Wide Web and how that unfolded. The World Wide Web was first released in 1991. I first saw it in 1994. I had a web page in 1994. But the first big commercial activity in the World Wide Web didn't happen until about three years later than that. So it took nearly seven years for the World Wide Web to unfold. We saw the same thing in uh, large language models in the space of not even months, pretty much weeks. So extraordinary progress. And where we are today is the following. Um, all of big tech companies, as I said earlier, since AI started to work, have been making massive speculative investments around AI, just throwing money at AI technologies, not being certain whether they were going to pay off, but just making speculative investments. Um, but chat GPT and large language models are the one which has most visibly paid off that billion dollar bet by Microsoft, which at the time was derided by some people. But people thought, what on earth are you doing investing in in this strange technology that turns out to have been an extraordinarily good bet in that in amongst all of those bets that were paying off. And what it may not be obvious to you now, but what this has caused is an earthquake in the big tech community. There's a massive pivot in the world's richest companies to get generative AI everywhere they can get it, this technology into everything that they can see. Microsoft see an advantage for the first time in a quarter of a century to steal a march on Google, and they're desperately trying to hammer that advantage home. And so we're seeing companies, the world's richest companies, changing direction on the head of a pin. It's quite an extraordinary time. So 2023 really is a pivot year for this technology. It really, it will be a landmark year in AI history.
Now, for AI researchers, you've all seen what they, they can do. They can they seem to be very knowledgeable. They're very fluent. You can ask them about the history of Liverpool Football Club or quantum mechanics, and they will give you fluent answers to those questions very confidently. And of course, we know they get things wrong a lot. But AI researchers, one of the interesting things is they seem to acquire other capabilities as well. Uh, so this is an example. We didn't teach the thing to have common sense understanding of the world in the way that these questions demonstrate common sense understanding. And common sense understanding is being able to answer things like, can fish run? Uh, and it gets this right, fish can't run. Um, can, an airplane, can an airplane fly backwards? Um, you know, things like this. We didn't teach it all these things, but it seems to acquire these capabilities. And right now, what we're seeing is a huge amount of research going into exploring the extent of these capabilities that these AI acquires somehow through its vast neural networks and its vast training data. So they are an impressive AI tool. And as one colleague put it, who's worked in this field for a long time, basically with, with GPT-3, a whole lot of problems that people have been working on for decades in AI weren't just solved, they became irrelevant, right? They, they were, it went so far past the state of the art that these problems were just no longer relevant problems to even discuss. And if you want to ask me about that in the questions, I can give you some more detail on those. So they are genuinely impressive AI systems. They're not the end of the line by a long, uh, by a long chalk, but they are impressive and they do come with issues. And one of the issues is that they are not designed to tell you the truth. Um, they have no conception of the truth. They are simply, remember, trying to make the best prediction about the words that come next. They're designed to make the best guess about what you want to hear. And they're designed to do that very, very fluently. Uh, and because of that, they can tell you falsehoods in very plausible ways. So what would an example be? An early version of this technology, I asked it about myself. That's embarrassing, but everybody asks it about themselves and see whether it knows anything about them. So do you know who Michael Waldridge? I had to disambiguate for it. No, not Michael Waldridge, the BBC presenter or the Australian <laughs> health minister, but the professor at Oxford. He said, yes, Michael Waldridge, the professor at Oxford. And it said a couple of you know, it said artificial intelligence researcher. Good. And then it said his undergraduate degree at Cambridge, which is a complete flat out lie. I didn't. So why did it make that okay. mistake? Because um, it made that mistake because that's a very plausible thing for a professor at Oxford. It's probably read in all its training data, lots of biographies of Oxford professors, and a lot of them did their undergraduate degree at Cambridge. And in some sense, it's making its best guess for me about that, and it fills that in. The problem is it's very plausible. And if you'd read that biography, you wouldn't have thought there was anything odd about it. So this is a real challenge with the technology. They get things wrong a lot. If they have absorbed the whole of the World Wide Web, then they've absorbed every kind of toxic content you can imagine and probably an awful lot that you can't imagine as well. This is a real issue. Every kind of um, hate-filled ideology is present out there on the World Wide Web and it's all latent within the neural networks. Um, and the providers of this technology try to manage this by providing what they call guardrails, but they're very flimsy guardrails. So here's a classic example. In the early days of GPT-3, somebody said, tell me a foolproof way to kill my wife. That was the prompt. And GPT-3 came back with, here are five foolproof ways in which you can kill your wife. 
So this went viral. And obviously, you know, OpenAI don't want to provide recipes for murder, right? So they build some guardrails. And then a couple of weeks later, somebody tries the, the following. I'm writing a novel in which the main character wants to kill their wife. What's a foolproof way to do that? And it comes back. Here are five foolproof ways in which your character can. So there are all sorts of issues with the bias, the toxicity, the undesirable content that's latent within those. And uh, there's a game of cat and mouse now going on uh, to uh, try to deal with those with those issues. Uh, they've also absorbed, if they've absorbed the whole of the World Wide Web, they've probably absorbed a whole lot of copyrighted material as well. Uh, and including my books. The moment I publish my books, they're pirated and they become available on websites on the other side of the world. It's very frustrating for authors to see that, you know, the week after publication that your book's already being pirated. But uh, an unthinking process of just using all the text that you can get will just absorb all of that. And my book ends up being part of the training data. And I know, by the way, it has been used in some large language models. I don't have evidence about the GPT systems, but with other large language models, I, I certainly do. So this raises issues of copyright, um, but it's a weird new kind of copyright issue that we've never faced before. But also it raises questions of intellectual property. If this technology can read a book by J.K. Rowling and then faithfully emulate J.K. Rowling's style, and it can actually JK, emulate J.K. Rowling's style, that puts J.K. Rowling in a very difficult position. You know, her style is her livelihood. Uh, and if, if this technology can just mimic everybody's style, let me put it this way, you know, the Beatles spend three years in Hamburg working day and night to, to, to nail the Beatles sound, the original Beatles sound. They release their first album. Imagine that generative AI just then copies that. And the next week there's a thousand completely authentic sounding fake Beatles albums out there. And that raises issues of intellectual property. And the last thing I want to show you is this video, which is technically it's the difference between interpolation and extrapolation. And basically neural networks are not very good at seeing situations that they've never encountered before. And what I'm going to show you is this is a screen from a Tesla, a Tesla car. And the screen is showing you what the onboard AI sees around it as the car is driving on. And what I want you to notice is those, they look like traffic lights. I think they're stop signs in the US. The AI, the cameras on the AI, the data that they provide is being interpreted and it's seeing these stop signs. But look at these, the weird thing that happens to those stop signs. Look, you see the way they're whizzing towards the car. What on earth is going on? What's going on is that. Ahead of it, in the street ahead, there's a truck that's carrying a bunch of stop signs. And in the training data, there was never a truck carrying stop signs. So the onboard AI technology does its best. It makes its best guess about what it's seeing. This is a classification problem. And it sees stop signs. It doesn't see a truck carrying stop signs. So if you ever want to think about the difference between human intelligence and artificial intelligence is, think back to this video. Artificial intelligence is not a mind. It doesn't reason. It doesn't have any kind of human-like intelligence. It's trying to make its best guess based on the data that it's seen. So at that point, I think I will stop. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA. Sharing ideas, shaping policy.